Um, so I believe with strong conviction that the future platforms that define the gig economy and whatever comes after that uh, through Web3 will provide a mechanism by which early adopters and early contributors to the ecosystem will be able to accrue value in that ecosystem. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford. And I'm Nick Lozano. And we are here hacking the leadership code with David Campbell, our our special guest today, who's returning for a second time uh, to the program. Thanks for joining us, David. Hey, thanks, Brian. It's really great to be back. And we're we're interested to kind of pick up where we left off and, and delve into some territory that's uh, near and dear to you uh, related to uh, Web3 context. But before we do that, I think it would be helpful to kind of, uh, you know, provide some context in terms of who you are, you know, what your background is. Uh, I've known you as a serial entrepreneur and just uh, a general uh, deep tech nerd on a lot of fronts. Uh, as well as uh, you know, a uh, a co-founder, an advisor, a mentor to just a lot of uh, standout brands and companies. Um, but it's better to hear it from you than it is from me. So, can you walk us through a little bit of your background? Sure. So, uh, I've been, I think, drawn to technology from a very young age. So, my I credit my old man with bringing home that PC when I was like seven years old and encouraging me to take it apart and figure out how it worked and really kind of learn how to express myself creatively through that technology. Um, And I was that nerdy kid in the basement writing uh, Turbo C code to make bulletin boards connect to each other. And uh, this is part of the reason why Web3 is such a powerful uh, inflection point for me is I've literally lived through the pre-internet era uh, connecting over dial-up, store and forward into Web 1, through Web 2, and now here with Web 3. Um, so it's it's with a tremendous amount of excitement that I'm here to, to talk a bit about that with you all today. Um, to cover, I guess I should plug in the power here. Yeah. Um, I, I got drawn deeply into uh, cybersecurity, and that was because I had a knack for just thinking, not how does this thing work, but how could I make it work differently? Or how could I make it not work? Uh, and it turned out that, that that kind of security mindset was quite valuable uh, as the internet took off and started reorganizing civilization. Um, and uh, I was a consultant working for the big four out of university, just literally hacking stuff and saying, here's what we need to fix, guys. Let's, let's sort this out. Then started my own consultancy uh, a company called Electric Alchemy. And through that practice, which I ran for about 10 years, I identified a number of gaps in the market uh, where products needed to exist that didn't exist. Uh, so Mobile Scope was an example of that, acquired by Evidon. Junk Cloud was another example, which I think was uh, recently valued at somewhere near $3 billion. Um, and uh, later went on to join SendGrid when they were in a critical phase of their growth, the company had experienced a near-death incident from a security problem that really shook the confidence of the employees and the investors and the customers. 
Um, and so I was, I was really humbled and pleased to be able to lead a, an amazing team of that organization through a period of just explosive growth. Uh, and I learned a lot about scaling people, process, and technology through that. Um, after SendGrid had a successful IPO and was later acquired by Twilio, uh, I, I took some time to look around and figure out where do I really want to lean in here? And uh, that's when I really became interested and had really solid conviction that this this Web3 phenomenon was real and that it was here to stay. Uh, so I, I spent the previous four years, the past four years with the Electric Coin Company, uh, which is the organization that brought the Zcash cryptocurrency into existence. And Zcash is really extraordinary because it is the first uh, production implementation of zero-knowledge cryptography uh, in cryptocurrency. And what we're seeing is that zero-knowledge cryptography is just popping up everywhere as a solution to problems uh, both in the digital currency space or the Web3 space, but more broadly in information technology. So I'm really excited to see uh, where zero knowledge takes us because I think it could solve a lot of our problems around information security and identity. I don't think I've ever been so excited by the phrase zero knowledge as uh, just hearing you introduce it <laughs> just then. Yeah, and I'll, I'll take like a quick 30 second detour <laughs> to talk about what zero knowledge or ZK tech is. Uh, and it's essentially the ability to prove, uh, for a prover to prove to a verifier that something is true without revealing the fact itself. So a canonical example of the utility of this is I need to prove uh, that I am old enough to vote, uh, but I don't necessarily need to reveal my date of birth to the verifier. And when we have created a, a whole infrastructure or a culture of you need to provide the fact to verify the assertion, what you end up are what you end up with are these large silos of, of very valuable, personally identifiable information uh, that are incredibly attractive to attackers. So, in the glorious future, I envision us using zero knowledge assertions to prove that I'm old enough to vote, I'm old enough to drink, uh, my credit is adequate to get this loan for this house without providing four years of tax returns and my social security number and all this other stuff. So that's that's the dream behind ZK. Uh, we're seeing right now zero knowledge used very effectively on the Zcash cryptocurrency to have confidential transactions, which I think is going to be very important as if and when digital currency starts to become part of mainstream finance. And we're starting to see that happen now. Uh, and then we've also seen zero knowledge cryptography pop up as a solution to scaling blockchain ecosystems, most notably the Ethereum ecosystem. So I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on all this technical uh, gibberish around particular protocols, because I think setting the stage for how did we get from web one to web two? What is web three? Is it just a marketing term? Is there any real substance there? Why are people excited? Why are people critical? There's some really interesting, influential people, and a lot of them come uh, from cybersecurity that are like crypto is a hoax. It's a scam. It's just snake oil terrorism. Stay far away. Why do they think that? And why are they so outspoken about it? Uh, so we can we can dip our our fingers uh, in the in that pool if you if you want. I think we definitely want to dip our fingers in that pool. I I know for me I've been on uh, social media for a few years, but it seems like recently, like probably in the past six months, I've been seeing all the rage about Web three, right? De decentralized everything from like social media to currency um, to uh, all kinds of stuff. And I, I remember a number of years ago seeing something about Web three, and it was supposed to be like augmented reality. 
um, right. in VR. So how do we kind of make that shift from there? And what is what is Web 3.0 to you? Sure. So I'll answer that by starting with the description of Web 1, which was literally this evolution from dial-up. Uh, the thing that created Web 1 was really the slip connection. So uh, I think Net Zero or a few other dial-up providers allowed a normal person that wasn't a university hacker to be able to get on the internet. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee created these early protocols, HTTP, that we use to this day to exchange information on the net. And the, the Web 1 was born. Uh, and this really started, I think, SSL, or, or what we now call TLS, the secure socket layer, is encryption that took Web 1 from, hey, let's exchange research papers from universities to I would like to buy dog food uh, on, the, on the internet. Um, so that, that was Web 1. And it was beautiful. And I think to talk to like 12 year old me back in 1986 and say, this is what's coming. Even web one would have blown my mind. Um, so then fast forward a few years and we think about web two, what was the essential difference there? And a couple things defined web two. Uh, one was the advent of mobile. And I think the key, we had mobile internet long before the iPhone, but it was using this protocol called WAP uh, and it was pretty awful. Like if you wanted to pull a sports score or a snow report, it was adequate, but forget about like the things we do today on your, your mobile phone uh, would have been unthinkable with the early web two mobile protocols. The iPhone really started to change that in particular, the iPhone 3G uh, touchscreen UI is creating this mobile centric web experience uh, with adequate bandwidth and low enough latency to be useful for, for interacting online. Um, and a key differentiator between Web 1 and Web 2 is that Web 1 was largely read-only. So unless you were an Uber nerd, you were consuming content on the internet. Uh, you could create a homepage. GeoCities and a few other places allowed, it, allowed people to do that without a whole lot of coding skill. But for the most part in Web 1, if you wanted to put, uh, plant a flag on the internet, you needed to know Unix and you needed to know HTML and later CSS. Uh, Web 2 changed that because it, it created this rise of platforms in which user-created content uh, became very popular. And so uh, MySpace and Friendster were early examples of this um, link. Yeah, people, people forget about that. That was actually one of the most popular early social networks. Yes, it really was. It was and it had sexy logo, too. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think today we think about peak Web 2. It's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's Twitter. Uh, and these things have incredible potential. They have connected the world. I think when you hear Zuckerberg talk about his mission with Facebook, uh, he literally wanted to connect you know, the, the people in the world. And I will say he was far, I had connected with the world through IRC in a terminal window, which worked for like my 20 nerd friends that could figure that out. Zuck, uh, to his credit, connected my 70-year-old aunt who wants to share pictures of her cat uh, with her, you know, six other brothers and sisters. And it's phenomenal that that works. Um, and I think Web 2 has also shown us that it can have a dark side. And we've seen this in the nation-state interference in our presidential election in 2016, uh, where we saw, you know, very powerful actors pushing targeted misinformation campaigns through our social networks uh, very intentionally to make our people think and vote a certain way. Uh, and we've seen this more recently with the 
uh, mental health epidemic that is plaguing a lot of our teenagers, in particular teenage girls, who have problems with their body image because of their quest for likes on platforms like Instagram. Uh, and then we've also seen this this the, the extent to which Web two platforms have tremendous power uh, come into sharp relief with deplatforming. So we saw this notably uh, during. Uh, the tail end of Donald Trump's presidency, getting deplatformed from Twitter. He was literally running the country from Twitter, which sort of terrifying in and of itself. But the fact that uh, a for-profit venture-backed public company CEO can say, you know what, and shut him off, uh, that's a meaningful inflection point. And I think we have now in just the past couple of weeks, we have seen the entire like web two financial system deplatform a nation state uh, in in Russia in response to the incursion or the invasion of Ukraine. So uh, there is no question that web two is amazing uh, at connecting people, but there is also no question that the uh, the question of censorship and who should be allowed to speak and what should they be allowed to say in web two it needs tuning and. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I have all the answers, nor am I going to say that if everyone just used Bitcoin for everything, that Web3 would solve all these problems we have with censorship and trolls and misinformation in Web2. That's not It's not that simple. But uh, Web3 really takes where we got to with Web2 and tries to reimagine it. So if Web1 was read-only uh, and Web2 was read-write, uh, web three is read, write, own. So what, what do we mean by that? And uh, I think that I stole that from Chris Dixon, who's a, a managing partner of the crypto fund at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and Chris does a really great, great uh, talk explaining the potential of web three to non-technical, non-crypto native people. Uh, he does this in a series that's on YouTube called the A16Z Startup School, uh, which it was a couple of years ago. So some of the content's a little long in the tooth, but it's still a fantastic overview to Web3. And what what Chris hangs his hat on in that, that inaugural talk of that series is he says, the big thing that Web3 depends on is the ability for computers to make commitments. And uh, that's a big... That's a big concept that we, we got to take a minute to unpack here. When, when we talk about a computer, what is a computer? Well, I grew up, you know, literally a computer in the basement and then later building data centers all over the, the world to power centralized infrastructure. And centralization brings a lot of benefit. It brings performance. It makes it easier to do security. There are a ton of reasons why we want centralization. Um, but what Bitcoin brought to the world was a single purpose computer that made a commitment about a couple of things. It made a commitment that there would be these tokens called Bitcoins or Satoshis or fractions of Bitcoins. Uh, and that um, I could send one to you, Brian, and that I couldn't simultaneously send that same token to Nick. Uh, and furthermore, the Bitcoin computer makes the commitment that there shall never be more than 21 million Bitcoins in existence. Now, um, anybody could make that commitment. So Google famously made a commitment years ago with their mission statement and said, don't be evil. 
Uh, and then famously, years later, they changed that statement. And I don't remember what they changed it to. But what's what's important is that they revoked that commitment to not be evil. Uh, and what Chris Dixon says is that the the power of a computer like the Bitcoin computer is to make a commitment such as can't be evil. And so the the decentralized nature of the Bitcoin protocol means that the participants of that network are financially incentivized to behave honestly without requiring any uh, centralized third party to arbitrate trust between the participants. So everybody gravitates toward everybody that, that uh, is interested in using the protocol has a financial incentive to behave honestly. Uh, and this is something that is new in computer science. It's new in economic theory. It's new in game theory. Like nobody before the, the Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin white paper, which I think was 2008, uh, articulated a capability for participants in a decentralized system, in a distributed computing system to coordinate their activities without centralized authority uh, governing it. So we end up with this Bitcoin computer that has made these commitments. Uh, and in the early days of Bitcoin, I remember looking at it and thinking, this is just never in a million years going to work. And why not? Why can't Bitcoin work? And I, I remind you, I spent the vast majority of my career working in software security, cybersecurity. And so I would be hired to audit code and to try to break it and to try and try to find vulnerabilities in it. And Bitcoin uh, basically broke all the rules of software development. So my friend Dan Kaminsky, uh, a famous uh, hacker who uh, just had an incredible heart and mind, incredible soul. He he actually passed away last year, uh, which is was incredibly sad for me and everyone who who knew him. Um, but years ago, he famously took a crack at Bitcoin. He said, "I am going to tear this thing apart, and I'm going to hack it. And I'm going to find where the problems are." And uh, he wrote up his experience there, and he said, "Look, as a software security guy, Bitcoin breaks every single rule in the book." It is written in an insecure language, which is C++. So there's no type safety. There's no memory safety. Like you couldn't pick a more insecure language to write your global decentralized currency in than C++. But arguably at the time, it was the best tool for the job. Uh, the Bitcoin core software also listens on the network, on a TCP port that is by design exposed to the world. So it accepts connections from anybody that wants to talk to it, which is again, an anti-pattern in software security. Uh, and then the entire thing is itself an extraordinary bug bounty where the entire market cap of Bitcoin uh, is, you know, billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, I think, at this point. And anybody that can hack Bitcoin can steal all that money. And yet here we are more than 10 years later and nobody's done it. So it's it's, I think, incredibly interesting. One, that Bitcoin exists Two that it represents this this paradigm shift. Uh, that we now have computers that can make commitments, uh, and three, that it's existed for as long as it has without anyone discovering a tragic security flaw that has brought the thing to its knees. I think uh, there's there's something called the Lindy effect, which refers to, I think, a sub shop in New York where the longer something exists, the longer it is likely to continue to exist. And I think for Bitcoin, we're, we're definitely there. Um, so Bitcoin is one example of a computer that can make commitments, but it's far from the most interesting example. And I think 
uh, the real potential of Web3 is going to be manifest, not in Bitcoin. I think of, and let me be clear, I like Bitcoin a lot. Uh, I've been involved with Bitcoin since 2011. I mentored a tech stars company in 2016 uh, called Bridge21 that used Bitcoin as the payment rail to facilitate cheap, fast cross-border remittances, literally helping people send money home to Mexico uh, for way less uh, money and way more quickly than what Western Union would charge. Um, and so I think Bitcoin is great. I think it is digital gold. And I think compared to gold, it's far more portable. Uh, it's far more uh, divisible uh, and it's far easier to protect um, given a certain set of assumptions. So I really like Bitcoin as a, uh, a, a store of value. And particularly as we look through, through the lens of current central bank fiscal policy in response to the pandemic, the uh, inherently deflationary nature of Bitcoin is incredibly appealing. Uh, because Bitcoin has a fixed supply, there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoins. Um, the community could assert that there should be more than 21 million Bitcoins. And you know, we all, uh, all, all us Bitcoiners could agree that this would be the case. We should have more than that. But I think it's extraordinarily unlikely, one, that anyone would propose such a thing, or two, that such a proposal would be accepted by the community. Um, and when I say accepted by the community, what does that mean? Like, what would it, how does Bitcoin change? And the answer is slowly uh, and not very much. And it changes when the people that are running the software decide to update and they need to decide to update the software in a coherent way. Otherwise it ends up in forks. Uh, and these forks essentially um, are, they, they can fragment the network. And we've seen a few of these in the history of Bitcoin. The most famous uh, argument or contested change had to do with whether or not the block size should be increased to make Bitcoin more usable for everyday payments. And the, the consensus, uh, well, consensus was not really achieved, but the majority of the participants in the network went, went along with the change that did not uh, dramatically increase the block size. And so that's why we have Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, which most people outside of, of you know, the crypto world have never even heard of. Um, so zooming back out, we've got Bitcoin as this, this uh, deflationary, decentralized store of value that for the most part is reasonably censorship resistant and permissionless. What do we mean by that? Well, uh, Permissionless means that anybody that wants to transact with the Bitcoin network can do so. Now, there's I'm going to put an asterisk by that assertion because there are mechanisms and, and tactics that people can use to try to keep other people from being able to interact with the Bitcoin network. But at the end of the day, the, the key is that you don't need Elon Musk to or the CEO of Bank of America or PayPal or whoever to basically say, yes, Brian, you can interact with the Bitcoin network. If you can make a TCP connection onto the internet, uh, you can connect to the Bitcoin network and you can announce a transaction. Um, so that that's the permissionless nature of it. The censorship resistance aspect of it has to do with, can a particular party decide, yes, Brian, you can pay uh, for groceries with Bitcoin, but you can't pay for adult uh, entertainment. That's, you know, technically there, are, there exists a, uh, a threat that that kind of thing could happen, but 
for the most part, uh, Bitcoin is more censorship resistant than things like PayPal or Venmo or, or fill in the blank. Um, so Bitcoin's very interesting to me as a, as a store of value. It's not great for paying for stuff. And this is one of the first hurdles where you run into people that get really cynical and jaded and grumpy about Web3. They're like, well, Bitcoin sucks because that guy, you know, he bought pizza with it 10 years ago. And now those pizzas are worth like eight Lambos. And that's, that's bad. Uh, so there's a there's concern around how long it takes for payments to be confirmed on the Bitcoin network. There's concern around the fact that Bitcoin itself is volatile relative to the U.S. dollar, which makes people un, uncomfortable with using it to pay for pizza or anything else. Uh, and those are all valid criticisms. But I think looking at looking down the barrel of 8% inflation uh, here in the United States, looking at unprecedented loose fiscal policy in response to the pandemic, um, it's important to take a moment to realize that Bitcoin was itself created in response to the 2008 economic collapse. Uh, so for those of us that lived through that, we remember the tagline, the banks are too big to fail. And what did that mean? It meant that under President Obama, uh, who to his credit, I believe, inherited this mess from his predecessors, but uh, he and his administration had to choose to essentially bail out the banks and uh, deploy a bunch of capital, really pull money out of thin air to prop up institutions that were themselves insolvent. They would have failed were it not for this government intervention. Um, and I think a lot of the Bitcoin, like if you look at the Genesis block uh, of Bitcoin, it has mentioned in there uh, this event related to the, the banking system collapsing. Um, and then we fast forward to 2020 and we see the COVID-19 pandemic really rocking the financial system. But very quickly in the United States, the, the impetus was let's prop up the system. Let's inject capital into the system. And there really wasn't much discussion about it. In 08, it was a big question. Should we or should we not prop up the system? Uh, the precedent, however, was set by that bailout in 08. And this time around, boom, massive injection of capital into the, into the system. Uh, and what's interesting is we saw, I think a lot of us thought we were injecting that capital in the, into the system to help people pay their rent and to be able to afford groceries and toilet paper and whatever else you need to survive a pandemic. Uh, and yet, surprisingly, we saw a lot of people depositing the exact amount of their stimulus checks into platforms like Robinhood and Coinbase for speculation, which I think maybe wasn't exactly the outcome we were looking for with those investments uh, into, our, into our people. Um, so I don't want to get too far down a political rabbit hole here, except to say that there is a very strong ethos within the Bitcoin community towards sound money. So a key anchor of the Bitcoin community, broadly speaking, is sound money. It's inherently deflationary. And no, it may not be great for paying for pizza, but it's a good place to uh, basically set aside funds that will likely appreciate over the long term. Well, that's a mouthful. And one of the things, you know, that I love about <laughs> Talking with DC is, uh, I mean, with some some of my my friends and comrades, I say, you know, wind him up and let him go. But with DC, he's like, you know, he he's like, you know, his his battery power never expires. You don't even have to wind him up; he just goes. <laughs> so you say that, and yet uh, there's there's a colleague of mine, Balaji Srivanson, who is a he's a serial entrepreneur. He founded a company called Earn. He's got a biotech background as well. Uh, his earned company was acquired by Coinbase. And Balaji's a big ideas guy. He's very much on the frontier of crypto and biotech and finance. 
and tech broadly speaking, but he did a podcast with Tim Ferriss recently where I, I am not kidding. He must've gone on for like four and a half hours at a blistering pace uh, and managed to like hold high intensity, like high intellect output for the entire time. And literally the only thing that ended the conversation was that Tim's batteries died uh, on his AirPods. Biology, I think could have gone another another three or four hours. It was, it was, it was a tour de force. Absolutely. Well, I guess it's a good thing that you brought along your own bottle of water because then it, you know, naturally inserts these, these break points for us to be able to jump in and ask some questions. Well, well, first of all, let me extend my personal sympathies for the loss of uh, Dan Kaminsky and, and your personal relationship there. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, a, a, a significant mention uh in the entire domain that you're talking about which is expansive um secondly with with everything that you're covering here uh you know i mean this is uh this is a turning point for humanity and and there's um there are ethical questions you know and you've, you've talked a lot about threats and that you know really your your background your interest that drove you into technology was in part a lot about exploring and exposing threats. So, so one of the things that comes to mind for me is so much of what you described in terms of uh, its its unmutable nature by those who would want to have their uh, nefarious ways with it, right? What does this spell out for the future of thieves and liars? Because that's probably the the biggest threat to wanting to oppose uh, the advent of a turning point like this. Yeah, I, you know, we hear that a lot. Uh, and the idea is because one of the first areas in which digital currencies and Bitcoin specifically demonstrated product market fit was in the dark markets. So uh, Silk Road was notorious uh, as an online open air drug market. Uh, and it raised the ire of policymakers and regulators a long time ago. Uh, and what is really interesting is that uh, the current state of most digital currencies is such that as a thief or as a criminal, you are much better off using cash or other legacy traditional finance instruments to perpetrate your illicit activity uh, than you are using digital currency. So the, the Silk Road story is actually quite interesting, and I won't go into it in excruciating detail except to say that uh, the Secret Service members who were on the detail to take down the founder of the Silk Road, a guy by the name of Ross Ulbricht, uh, they were able to follow money through the public ledger. The Bitcoin uh, network posts each transaction to a ledger that anyone can download and that public block explorers exist for that index every single transaction so that you, I, or anybody could just search for a transaction ID or a wallet address uh, and see the entire transaction history of that address and who it's transacted with and the amount. So there's an extraordinary amount of information that's public and available. But in the Silk Road case specifically, uh, Ross was brought down, I think, largely through some operational security failures that led law enforcement to his hosting provider and uh, eventually revealed details about his identity that led to his capture in San Francisco. Uh, but a woman named Catherine Hahn was a federal prosecutor who was uh, responsible for take, bringing a case against uh, two Secret Service agents that were dirty and were stealing money from the government as part of this investigation. And it's fascinating uh, to hear her tell this story that's been well documented in the press because 
This is when, for the first time, someone in law enforcement as a federal prosecutor appreciated the potential of fully transparent digital ledgers to help them catch bad guys. Uh, so she brought those bad guys to justice. Uh, then she left her career as a federal prosecutor and joined Andreessen Horowitz as uh, a venture partner leading the crypto fund. Uh, and she subsequently, uh, about six months or a year ago now, uh, split out on her own with her own crypto fund. So it's, I think, uh, really exciting to see that narrative turned on its head of only terrorist financiers and, uh, you know, sex traffickers and drug dealers and arms dealers are using cryptocurrency. It's absolutely nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. And uh, law enforcement, I think, very much likes having tools at their disposal to use public ledger information to track uh, and to build cases that stick uh, against criminals. I'd, I'd kind of like to explore going the other direction with it, because as much as we'd like to believe that, you know, those who operate in democratic governments you know, like those of the United States, uh, that they're perpetrators of uh, good law enforcement themselves. Uh, but but aren't there some some interests that today are getting away with a lot of things that would uh, uh, would go the way of the dinosaur uh, if if um, you know everything with Web three uh, were to become the standard uh, by which you know world governments in particular uh, operated with one another. Yeah, so transparent blockchains provide a degree of transparency and with that accountability uh, that I think you don't have in a lot of traditional organizations. And I think this is why one of the hot buzzwords right now in Web3 is DAO. Uh, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization, and it's essentially a way for folks to coordinate and to organize their coordination uh, methodically and to specifically manage decision-making and financial uh, operations on chain, meaning for all the world to see. Uh, so I think there is a case to be made that as more and more things move on chain, will it be harder for shady things to occur? Quite possibly. Although I do think that in order for business to move on chain in a meaningful way, there will need to be confidentiality. Uh, and that confidentiality will need to be at least as uh, capable uh, or as effective as the confidentiality that we experience today in the traditional financial system. So uh, if I go and I actually, I just went to the art supply store on my way uh, here to record this um, and I paid with a credit card. So at this point, uh, I bought a sketchbook for my daughter. I paid with a credit card. So I know I bought the sketchbook. The vendor, uh, the art supply store knows I bought the sketchbook. Uh, and Visa knows I bought the sketchbook. And at some point, my my bank, Chase, which is uh, the acquiring bank, I think, for this card, they'll know I bought the sketchbook. But everybody that knows my name doesn't know I bought the sketchbook. Uh, that is not the case today with Web3. So uh, there's a great example of, of the tremendous extent to which everything is public in Web3 right now related to the Ethereum name system. So we haven't yet talked about Ethereum, and that's a that's a whole other thing that we really need to cover. Uh, but very briefly, ENS is really quite equivalent to DNS on the internet, which takes human uh, readable names and turns them into IP addresses. The ENS system takes uh, a human-friendly name and turns it into an Ethereum wallet address. 
Uh, and so what's interesting is a lot of Web3 people put their ENS names in their Twitter handle. And you can take any one of those ENS names, stick it into a block explorer like etherscan.io and immediately see the entire transaction, the balance and the transaction history, uh, all the tokens that this particular address has interacted with for all of time. Um, so the, the need for confidentiality, I believe, exists if we're going to move our lives into this digital continuum in a meaningful way, our financial lives. We need confidentiality. Uh, we don't have that today, but I do believe that there are multiple paths that will get us there uh, that will provide an appropriate level of confidentiality without creating this like black hole of uh, anonymity that would fuel sanctions evasion and all the, the four horsemen of the infopocalypse like uh, CSAM and, uh, you know, arms trafficking and that sort of stuff. It's there are trade offs to be navigated. Uh, China notably is pushing forward. China did some interesting stuff. They were early on in grokking the importance of Web3 and blockchain. And they said, you know what, we're just going to ban that. And they've banned Bitcoin now two or three times. The last ban, I think, was the most formidable and effective because you look at the hash power on the Bitcoin network and it's just moved away from China recently, which is, I think, a gift to the West uh, from a geopolitical power perspective. Uh, but they, they still believe in the power of digital ledger. They just don't want it to be decentralized, permissionless, and censorship resistant. They want to be the ones issuing the digital currency. They want to be the ones instrumenting it. And they want to know everything uh, about how every one of their citizens is using and spending that money. And they're, they're well on their way to achieving that goal. I'm giving it a pause because I'm, I'm hogging the conversation here on our end. I want to make sure that Nick, who I know has some questions, ping you as well. You're fine. I just, I'm just soaking this, this <laughs> all in. Um, it's pretty, pretty interesting to me. So for the average person who's hearing web, like web three this talk about crypto and NFTs, what's the most important thing for them to understand about this? Sure. I think we're in a, we're in an interesting phase, uh, where, at this point, I think this technology is poised to completely change um, the way that we coordinate with each other as human beings. Uh, but I also believe that as this technology matures and evolves, it will be abstracted away so that the average user won't even know that the plumbing underneath the internet that they're depending on has been completely refactored. Uh, so. Uh, we all drive cars. A lot of them are still powered by internal combustion engines, but you can drive your car down to the grocery store without needing to know how an internal combustion engine works, what a spark plug is. Uh, all you really need to know as the operator of that vehicle is where's the gas pedal, where's the brake, and how do I steer? And I think right now in Web3, the amount of technical knowledge that's required to participate in the ecosystem is extraordinary. And so it's the equivalent of needing to basically be able to, uh, you know, overhaul the engine yourself uh, uh, as you're driving the car to the grocery store. That is current state of Web3 for end users. Um, but the meaningful things that will change is that participants on platforms and in systems will have the ability to have skin in the game. So I'll give an example of something that's transformed society pretty formidably over the past several years, and that's the gig economy. So it started with Uber and then Lyft and then Airbnb. Uh, and we see it now with Grubhub and Uber Eats and all these companies that are putting people to work, uh, hustling around, taking us places and bringing us food. And 
the companies that built these systems have almost no assets on their balance sheet. They have almost no employees on the balance sheet. Uh, and yet they are billion dollar companies. How is that? How is it that they're extracting that much value from the ecosystem? And meanwhile, uh, the drivers that, you know, however many years ago when Uber got started, they said, what is this Uber thing? Should I go try that? Uh, those drivers, have, they're no better off today than they were that day 10 years ago when they started driving. Maybe they're, they're, they're hand to mouth, right? They don't have benefits. Uh, they have, they took a chance on Travis's enterprise that this thing was going to work and they drove people to the bar in their Prius or whatever, but they did not receive any equity compensation. They didn't even get a W-2 paycheck. Um, so I believe with strong conviction that the future platforms that define the gig economy and whatever comes after that uh, through Web3 will provide a mechanism by which early adopters and early contributors to the ecosystem will be able to accrue value in that ecosystem. So the the corollary here is that an Uber driver in a Web3 world uh, would start earning tokens, the Uber governance token, if you will, for every ride that they delivered. Uh, and the people that were earlier into the ecosystem would get more. And then when key decisions needed to be made, like uh, should we provide uh, healthcare and like disability and retirement to these drivers, people that hold the governance token would be able to opine on that. Uh, similar to the way that shareholders and public companies do today. So this is a, a construct that I think is going to meaningfully change the contours of the game for ordinary people into the future. Now, today, you can participate in a DAO. Uh, you can help make these kinds of decisions, but they require you to have specialized knowledge. They require you to know what is a crypto wallet? How do I generate my keys? What are these tokens? How do I get them? Uh, and that's just, it's a bar too far. But I think in the glorious future, which is, much closer than we think, uh, it will be possible for folks that are contributing value to get a share of the long-term impact of that value that they're creating over time. That's so cool. So I heard you mention that uh, Ethereum is something that we, we obviously don't have time to unpack today, but that we need to. So can I just ask right now, can we get you back on so that we can just focus for another? Sure. Let, me, let me give you the, let me give you the 30 second elevator pitch yeah. for Ethereum. So Bitcoin is the store of value. It's digital gold. Uh, and there's actually a fantastic book on Bitcoin called digital gold by a guy named Nathaniel Popper that it's, uh, it's probably like eight some years old at this point, but a really good read. If you want to learn about the origin story of Bitcoin and how it sort of came into prominence, uh, Ethereum was created several years after Bitcoin. And the commitment that Ethereum makes to the world is that anybody can deploy software onto the Ethereum network. Ethereum is essentially a world computer. And the commitment that Ethereum makes is that anybody can write software, deploy it onto the Ethereum network, and then forever after, for all of eternity, anybody that wants to can interact with that software. And furthermore, every uh, participant on the Ethereum network is validating and verifying that that software is operating correctly, which is just from a security perspective, it's extraordinary. Uh, and that architecture creates all sorts of performance and scalability concerns. But the big concept there is just that Bitcoin is digital gold, Ethereum is a world computer, and we need both. Way to be succinct, my friend. 
<laughs> well, I know we've got a few minutes left here for today's episode, but um, I, I think it would be beneficial to to do sort of an equally succinct um, stab at NFTs. You know, what is their importance and what is the relevance beyond sort of the state of novelty uh, that we hear, you know, yeah. continually being referred to in the mainstream right now. So, Brian, are you just trying to say it's not the the meme where it's right click save <laughs> joke? It's not that meme. Not for the purposes of this conversation, no. <laughs> right. So, NFTs are definitely squarely in the center of the hype cycle right now, and I think they're also the reason why there's so much vitriol and hate in the information security community for like f crypto. This stuff is all just. When people are paying 10 ETH for an ape that you can just right-click save, the, the ability to articulate the what, how Web3 is going to empower a new generation of Uber drivers to be on the cap table of the next great gig economy company, those two things just don't connect. Uh, so I believe that NFTs represent a, an inflection point that will fundamentally refactor how we do intellectual property rights online. Uh, we're not there yet, and there's hundreds of years of meat space um, disagreement resolution that won't gracefully move on chain. Uh, but the primitives cryptographically and technologically exist to basically take anything that we can represent in the physical world or anything that we have in the physical world and represent it in the digital world uniquely in a way that, that can't be copied. Um, and that's big. And I think the early areas where we'll see traction there are around music, uh, film, art. Uh, but I think later we'll see, as the dispute resolution processes become more mature and more net native, we'll see things like property start to be represented as NFTs. So uh, I don't own any NFTs other than I'm alchemydc.eth, alchemydc.crypto. And I think I've got that name on Decentraland, which is a metaverse play uh, that's going to give the Facebook metaverse a run for its money. I don't have any apes. I don't have any punks. Uh, and I'm okay with that. But stay tuned. I think there is going to be quite a lot of interesting innovation happening as we see uh, our approach to intellectual property, things like patents uh, and copyright, really taking shape around uh, these, these non-fungible representations. That's great. It's uh, it's good to hear that. That's what my thought was it when I first saw it. You know, I thought that's crazy. People are paying this, but when I stopped to think about it, okay, well, think about the musician who's trying to license their art and prove that it's theirs. Um, it's that that digital proof. Which when I stopped to think about, it, I'm like, oh wait, that's kind of that's kind of a cool concept. Now they can leave out the BMI and they don't have to be a member of that. They can just prove it's their own without having to deal with that big organization and give them a cut. It's exactly right, and I think broadly speaking, that's the appeal of Web three. It's to uh, Chris, Chris Dixon articulates this as the take rate of these marketplaces. It's too high for things like the App Store. It's too high for centralized players like Spotify. Uh, and so what Web3 allows uh, creators to do is to basically benefit more from uh, their creation and basically pay a smaller take rate in the process. Beautiful. I think that's a great place to to wrap it up for today. You've uh, you've just unpacked a ton of information, DC, um, but but you do it so elegantly, and it's it's a pleasure to speak with you about these things. Really appreciate uh, the thought leadership that you bring every time we we have a discussion like this. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I, I think about this stuff all the time. 
Uh, I deal with a lot of criticism. I mentioned my my own security community is very critical. My own children are pretty critical. They've been involved in the crypto ecosystem here for quite some time, and they they think it's just number go up, number go go down. There, it's hard for them to wrap their heads around the the long term uh, shift in society that I think Web three uh, promises. So before you go DC, we got to do our 60 second leadership hack. So uh, like we were telling you earlier, before we started recording, it could be some personal antidote, something you learned, um, something that you can just think can help benefit our listeners. Um, So I'm going to put a timer up. Something uh, that could even challenge your children to think differently. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So this will uh, start playing here in a second. Once, Once you start seeing the timer, you are on the clock. So whenever you're ready. What's going on, everybody? Nick from lead.exe. If you want access to David Campbell's 60 second leadership hack, you're going to go and join our leadership hacking crew. To do that, you just head on over to pages.leadexe.com forward slash join. Link is right below and uh, enter your name and email address. From there, you'll get uh, access to all of our other guest leadership hacks, not just his, uh, l- newsletter updates, all kinds of great stuff coming your way. So if that sounds interesting to you and you want access to this leadership hack, go ahead and join our leadership hacking crew. We look forward to having you aboard. That, that was awesome. Sweet. That was awesome. <laughs> and so with that, and so with closing, DC, if people are looking for you online um, or, or social media, what's the best way to, for them to find you, get a hold of you, and uh, learn more about what you do? Sure. So it's uh, Alchemy DC on Twitter. And I'm terrible at social Perfect. media, we'll be- but you can find me there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the hub and spoke thing, right? You just kind of use it as a hub to, to drive people somewhere else. But uh, yeah, so, so we'll be sure to post that in show notes. Um, and we'll put all your other organizations that you listed in there too. Uh, so if anyone's looking for it, they can find you. Great. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. It was Appreciate awesome. It. Thank you, DC. Love you it. All right. See you next time. Too bad. Bye.